0: If you have your Bibles this morning, and of course I hope that you do, I invite you to turn me to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. We are going to finish chapter 1 this morning and just dip our toe into chapter 2. As we are finishing up this, um, I say finishing up, starting and finishing the second complaint of the prophet Habakkuk. Last week, we uh, be kind of moved into this, what's called the second complaint, but we kind of stalled for a little bit, and uh, hopefully it was beneficial to all of us uh, just to stop and to talk about the glory of God. I don't think that's something we can talk about enough or do enough justice to as the prophet himself, before he got in, before he lodges his second complaint. If you remember last week, he, in a uh, very formal way, said, with all due respect, God, uh, and so before he launches into his, into his complaint, he gives genuine honor to the Lord. And some would say that this is a unique passage, that there is not a, a more clear passage in all of Scripture in which the writer addresses the the holiness and majesty of God before going into a uh, complaint. And complaint not in the way that we think of complaint in the 21st century. Because we think of complaint in the 21st century, we think what? We think whining, right? We think our children. And if you are a parent here, and if your kids are old enough to speak their first words, baby, mama, or dad, but it's usually attached to some kind of complaint. And so in everything of complaining, it's a good bit different than Habakkuk here. This is we've been talking about a, a lamentation genre, if you will, uh, where he is lamenting uh, the evil that he sees around him, both the evil that is it is in Israel, that's in Judah, and the corrupt leadership, but also the evil that's happening around the world. Uh, that we are seeing being um, fleshed out in the Chaldeans or Chaldeans, the Babylonians, if you will. So a lot of stuff has been going on uh, so far in this book, and we continue in that this this morning. And so as we see in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 1, his first complaint, Habakkuk's first complaint was, Lord, there is so much evil around me. And we As we kind of... Uh, dove into that first week evil both in the the leadership of israel the 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 we'll see especially as we continue in, in verse five there the is the evil that's all around him the death and the destruction has been uh that's being carried out by the babylonians but ultimately this evil that is just surrounding the prophet he goes to the lord and says lord are you even awake are you are you listening are you active are you present do you even hear me when i cry do you hear me whenever i speak there in verse two it says, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? And it says, Why do you idly look at. Uh, why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? And we're going to see a subtle shift in that this morning in his second complaint. And the Lord answers him. He says, no, I'm not idle. No, I'm not absent. I am very present. Not only am I present, I am active. I am active and I am at work right here in the Babylonians. And they are my instrument. I am using them to bring judgment uh, to, to, the, to sinners and discipline to uh, to those who are mine. I'm using them in a very specific way, and Habakkuk, as he does throughout the book, uses very vivid language to to paint this very clear picture of just how ferocious and fierce the Babylonians are, and we'll see even more of that this morning. So that's just a little bit of where we are. Now let's jump into where we are today. So Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to start start back with verse 12 and read through uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Says are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up. He being the offender, the, the Babylonians, with a hook, he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And here's Habakkuk's bold um, response to his complaint. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he, being God, will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. You've got to love the boldness of this prophet. Let us pray. Lord, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for a chance to open your word. And Lord, in the only way in which we can, we pray for the Spirit to enlighten us this morning. With the Spirit, open our eyes and our ears to see what we need to see and to hear what we need to hear this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace. Thank you, Lord, that you are active all around us in ways that we can't even imagine in the name of christ we do pray amen so as we look at habakkuk's second complaint um, it seems maybe at a casual reading that it seems very similar. It seems like almost like the same, right? He's still complaining of Israel. Uh, of Israel. He's still complaining of evil. He's still looking around him and seeing the things that are happening. He goes back to the to Bab- to Babylonians here and kind of uh, fleshes out again just how how horrendous they are, how evil they are. It looks very similar, but there is a significant difference in his first complaint and his second complaint. In the first complaint, the prophet Habakkuk he struggles with God's absence amidst evil all around him. He 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 is he is looking to he is, his complaint revolves around God's absence amidst evil all around him. You see see verse three there. It says, "When why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong?" Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the emphasis on his first complaint is he is aware of all this evil around him. He's not aware of God's presence. And so it's like, Lord, where are you? And God answers him I'm here. I'm clearly here. I'm doing all the things we said he's doing. So in the second complaint, it shifts. He accepts that God is present. He accepts that God is even actively at work using the Babylonians to bring about his judgment. So he, he gets that. He accepts it. But now he's struggling. Okay, God, you've said you're here. You've said you're active, and I see you at work. But how? How can you, this holy God, how can you be so active? How can you use this unrighteous nation to judge a righteous nation. So he fully embraces and submits to that the Lord is at work. And that he is using Babylon. But now he's struggling with how can he do it? How can you, as it says there in verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil. We're going to see this kind of analogy here of, of sight. And cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors, at treacherous individuals the word means, and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. And so we see the prophet here, he uh, he doesn't waste words, right? He, he, he sets it out. He sets it, sets it very in the beginning. Lord, you are holy, you are everlasting, you are Yahweh. Uh, we shall not die We're ultimately your people will be, will be your people. And we acknowledge all that last week. But now that he has he said that, he has affirmed what he believes of who God is. And we see that Habakkuk is a faithful prophet. We see that he is in the remnant. He is amongst those who look to and trust the Lord. But he has this genuine question, this genuine concern. And so, as we deal with the uh, prophet's complaint this morning, one struggle is we're not going to get to the answer. And so, as we work through Habakkuk, uh, it'd be like a two-week series, right? Okay, here's complaint one, here's the complaint, here's the answer, here's complaint two, here's the complaint, and here's the answer. But you know, North Hills, we don't roll like that. We're going to work our way through this. And so, this morning, we won't get to the answer. All the rest of chapter 2 is developed to God answering this second complaint of Habakkuk. But there are, if you will, there are three important observations that we're going to see from this text. And I'd like us to not lose sight of. The first one is this. As we look at this text this morning, our first observation is it's okay to question God. It's okay to question God in faith and trust. It's okay to question God in faith and trust. Habakkuk is not the only writer in Scripture to question god and his involvement with sin and evil we've said many times that this is a theodicy this is a a book that addresses uh the the question the question we're going to talk specifically about this morning how is evil in the world ultimately the question is if if god is all-powerful uh with the question of evil can you be all-powerful and all-good you know someone say you can't be all-powerful and all-good you're either or but he is all-powerful and he is good i love the 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 psalm we read this morning and may may this if i could talk some of you probably didn't maybe dial in on what i dialed in on even in what i'd highlighted earlier but psalm chapter 50 talking about the the power of god and the sovereignty of god and really his his powerful his power i love what it says in psalm 50 uh verse 12 if i were hungry i would not even tell you I mean, just think about that, like in reality in our life, right? If you're hungry, you're around someone, if someone who has the ability to feed you, maybe you're, you're a kid and you're hungry, like our kids don't waste any time, right? They wake up hungry, they live hungry, they go to sleep hungry, they're always in a state of hunger, and they're always in a state of telling us they're hungry because they can't do it for themselves, you know, at best, right, can I get a snack? And Can I get whatever? We've heard this over and over. Even in our own life, if we're hungry, we, we like to tell folks that we're hungry. How can we solve this problem? But God says, if I were hungry, I would even tell you, for the world and its fullness are all mine. God is all-powerful. He needs nothing. He sits in the heavens and does as he pleases. So, yes, he is all-powerful, as we saw last week in verse uh, 12. He is all good. He is holy. He is magnificent. He is majestic. So, these both of these truths are in, indeed true. They are facts. And so, Job and Jeremiah deal with this among others, Malachi and Asaph and the Psalms. But specifically, Job chapter 21, verse 7 and 8 says this Why do the wicked live? Why do they reach old age and grow mighty in power? So why do evil men live long? Job says. Their offspring are established in their presence and their, descendant, their descendants before their eyes. And so Job is asking God the same question. Why, why do evil men prosper? Jeremiah the prophet says this in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and, you, and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. So we see this question. And there's other places in Scripture, but Habakkuk and Jeremiah and Job and several others ask this question. They come to the Lord and they ask a genuine question. God, how is it that evil thrives? How is it that evil is even allowed, right? And so this is a genuine question uh, that Habakkuk offers up to the Lord this morning in the form of a complaint. As one writer puts it of Habakkuk, it says it very well, Habakkuk is not a drowning man about to go under for the last time. That's important, right? He's not coming to the Lord like he is, he is drowning and he's at the end and he is, he is just eaten up and he is in, in deep sorrow and things that's over. As we saw last week in verse 12, he says, We will not die. He recognizes that. So Habakkuk is not a drowning man about to go under for the last time. Paradoxically, his very strong inner security. So the, the, the foundation that he has, the rock that he mentions in verse 12 as a person beloved by and belonging to God. So he's engaging God with this question, but he knows who he is. He is but he's loved by God. He belongs to the Lord. Releases him to batter the gates of heaven and berate the living God. And so it is with confidence that he comes before the Lord. It is, he knows He is His rock. He knows who He is in the Lord. He knows who God is as we see in verse 12. And so it is okay to question God in faith if you are trusting the Lord. It is from a place of trust and truth that believers question God. It is from a place of trust and truth that believers question God. Imagine most of us and all of us in here at some point in our life and maybe even now in the midst of your circumstances, maybe you question God in your own circumstances and the circumstances of the world around us. And there's different ways we question. There's different different, um, motives, if you will, of our question. But it's okay from a place of trust and truth that we're trusting who God is and we're resting on the truth of who He is. Just as from a place of distrust and doubt, unbelievers question God. And that is not the place that we want to question the Lord. Whenever we distrust and doubt. And so we see this, especially in unbelievers. They question God, not in the way that Habakkuk does, not in the way that we do as the church. But they question God. Okay, God, if you're all powerful, you can't be all good because evil exists. And God, if you're all good, you can't be all powerful because evil exists. And it's rampant and it's all around us. And we're going to see in the end of this chapter that it continues and it grows. But we, as God's people, we trust in the character of God. And we embrace the truths that we see of God and that we hold so dearly from Scripture. And so the two... There are two seemingly opposed truths here. How can God be all-powerful? And how can He be all-good? And if you engage believers on any kind of regular basis in your life, if you talk to those at work or in your family or friends or people in school, if you really have honest conversations with, with the lost in your life, this question will come up. Maybe you have asked the same question. It's the question that Habakkuk struggles with. But as believers, even if we don't understand the how, we trust in the who. We trust in God. We we look to Him and we embrace both. We embrace the fact that God is good, that God is holy, and that He is just. And we also embrace the fact that He is powerful, that He is mighty, and that He is sovereign. It's okay to question God from a place of trust, place of truth, and a place of faith. And we'll look at his answer next week. The second observation we see here in our text is that sinners and believers both suffer. Sinners and believers both suffer, but very differently. Habakkuk was struggling here with the evil from the Chaldeans. Coming to God's people. See there at the end of verse 13. Why do you look at traitors, these treacherous individuals? Why do you look at these sinners and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now, there's a couple ways that you can look at this, and there is um, probably the way that is most fair, especially to Habakkuk here, that he is probably speaking of the remnant of Israel. That, God, you are using the Chaldeans as, as a judgment, as your arm to, to judge sinners, to judge those who profess that they know you, but they really don't. And so they are, they're judging those who are unbelieving in Israel. They're judging the sinful world. But yet, why are the remnant, why are those who have faith, why are those who are truly called by your name, why are they being swallowed up? Why are they enduring your judgment as well? So he's struggling with this, this question. With the, the Babylonians coming to judge God's people, it seems that it is a real point of concern for the remnant of Israel. Because he understands God's judgment against the faithless, he understands God's judgment against uh, the, the sinners, those who have rejected God. And we can hear another similar question, even in, again, from our lost friends and from even in our own, maybe our own hearts and our own minds. Why do bad things happen to good people? Is that not one of the top questions you hear and have asked and struggle with in your life? Why do bad things happen to good people? You don't have to say it aloud, but what's the answer? Why do bad things happen to good people? They don't. <laughs> bad things don't happen to good people because there are no good people. So go with me to Romans chapter 3, briefly. You say, well, John, you don't know my grandma. John, you don't know so-and-so. John, you don't know me. (laughs) I am a good individual. And I think I may have said this the past week or two, and it's a conversation that that we've had in in my workplace in the past several months as we talk about good people. And I get looks when I say there are no good people. But uh, Romans chapter 3 We'll read about nine verses here, starting in verse nine. What then are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Everyone's under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. You can stop right there, right? I mean, if you really believe the Bible, if you believe Scripture to be true, right there, no one—not like no Americans, not like nobody in church, no—but no one, not a single person, understands, and no one seeks God. No one is righteous. Not a single person. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of Asp is under their lips. Their, mouths, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we see this in other places of Scripture. That it's clear as you read the Old Testament, as you read the New Testament, as you read the New Testament, quoting the Old Testament, it's clear that there's no good. There's no one good. And if you're honest with yourself, we can even experience that in our own life. Because we know our hearts, we know our minds, we know our inclinations. That's true of every person who's ever lived. There is no one good. So why do bad things happen to good people? They don't, because there are no good people except Christ. And the only goodness that's in us is that which is from Christ. And this is a hard truth for many people to grasp that apart from the righteousness of Christ, there is none good, not a single person. And those who are in Christ are nothing but the recipients of God's grace. You don't become good on your own. You don't go to church enough. You don't give enough. You don't do enough good things. There is no enough. It's only the goodness that comes from Christ. So apart from Him, there is no one good. And thus, as God brings judgment upon sinners, and He brings discipline upon His people, He is just in doing so. Because if we're not good, what do we deserve? Just if you're still in Romans, just flip the page there. Romans chapter three verse twenty three all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Go to Romans chapter six. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that the fruit you get leads to sanctification and and its end is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so if we're not good, if apart from Christ we are sinners, what do we deserve? As we say often here in North Hills, death, hell, and the grave. We do not deserve anything. We are not entitled to anything good. We are not entitled to God's grace. And so, why do bad things happen to good people? They don't, because there are no good people. We are but the recipients of God's grace. And God is completely just, completely just. And bringing judgment upon sinners and discipline upon his people. So sinners and believers alike, they both suffer. I'd say bad things do happen, right? It'd be a misnomer to say bad things don't happen to believers. If you become a believer, if you join the church, if you follow Christ, everything's good. It's not true, is it? Bad things still happen. We still experience suffering. We still experience difficulty. We still experience sickness. We still get cancer. Loved ones still die. We lose jobs. All, fill in the blank of all the things that you've experienced in your own life in the past five years. But all things work together for the good of those who love and trust the Lord and call according to His purposes. So they're still difficult. You can call them bad, whatever adjective you want to call them. But they work together for the good. So we still experience very difficult moments, even as believers. Jesus promised it. He said, in this world, you will have troubles. This world is not always going to be good. This world is going to be tough. He says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And so that is where our hope is. He is where our hope is. It's Christ. But sinners, when they experience difficulty, unbelievers, when they experience suffering, when they experience tragedy, they do so hopelessly. So when you, when you are engaged with your co-workers and family and friends who do not know and love the Lord, when they're not called according to His purposes, when they do not have the Spirit of God that dwells inside of them, they experience it hopelessly. So when you go to Habakkuk's day and time, when you see the, the Babylonians just uh, moving across the earth and destroying everything they touch like locusts, if you're not looking to the Lord, you're hopeless. If you're in today's time, and you... Are not under a rock, and you read the news every day. It's hopeless, right? If you're not in Christ. And so, to beware that unbelievers experience suffering, they experience difficulty, they experience evil in the only way they can, in a hopeless way. But as believers, we experience suffering hopefully because our hope is Christ. So, our three observations the first is that it's okay to question God. In faith and in trust. The second one is that it's sinners and believers alike both suffer, but differently. And the third one, and here's our hope, is that God remains in control. He remains in control. Verse 14, you make, God, you made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And then he goes on to say what the Babylonians, kind of who they are. He just describes them again, very vividly and viciously. The Babylonians, they bring all of them up with a hook. So these these men that are like fish and these crawling things, they bring them up like a hook. They drag them out with their net, he gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. So you see this picture, right, of, of evil. I mean, evil's bad enough, but then to rejoice in that evil, we just we really feel the weight of how evil this, this nation was. That they rejoice. They're not just plundering for the sake of growing their empire and have some sense of false remorse. They're glad they, they are raiding these towns and villages and murdering men, women and children they are doing so with great joy. And therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. And that's a that's a way of saying that their God becomes their might. Their God becomes the way they engage war. Their God becomes their, their, their military ability. For by them, by these mechanisms of war, by these hooks that they are planting in these fish and pulling them up, by these nets that they are dragging in these fish with, for by them He lives in luxury and His food is rich. So, I mean, again, when you connect this at the beginning of chapter one, who has, who has stationed the Babylonians? God has. He said, I have set them up. I have caused them success so that he can use them for his purposes. And so here's Habakkuk saying to God, God, I don't get it. How can you, a holy God, how can you set this nation up to judge? And so one thing just to kind of come in and swoop and, and cast judgment. But now they're running rampant. Now they're everywhere. Now they're destroying the world, they're like locusts all over the, the earth, they're not going to stop. And he, that's what he says in verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So, God, you've created a monster here. You've created this evil nation. And I just, I'm hopeless. We know he's full of hope because he's looking to the Lord, but he's, he's a- asking this question. And God we'll answer him but we know that god remains in control we know that god is all powerful we know that he doesn't wind the 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 clock if you will of an evil nation or an an evil entity or some kind of sinful circumstance or some kind of difficult moment in our life and just let it go and see what happens he is in full control full control the end of Habakkuk's complaint here addresses just how bloodthirsty these Babylonians are. Are they going to keep doing this forever? But if God is sovereign at all, He is sovereign over all and for all time. If He's really all-powerful, He's always all-powerful. If He is sovereign at all, He is sovereign over all and for all time. His sovereignty And His rule and His power and His might will never end. He didn't uh, didn't exhaust His strength on the Babylonians. He didn't exhaust His strength on some other enemy nation in the past 2600 years. He didn't exhaust His strength on on defeating the Nazis. He didn't exhaust His strength on anything. He is all-powerful all the time. And we see all through Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, one of the main themes of the Bible was the kingdom of God. And that's what the Israelites kept looking for, was the establishment of the kingdom of God. And, and most of them, they, they misunderstood it. They thought that the kingdom of God would be this physical kingdom. he put it on the earth, They he'd destroy everybody. And they would have this earthly king and, and rule and reign forever. But we see in the New Testament, we see the kingdom of God is coming. It's, kinda, it's in the process of being here. It's the reign and rule of God in the hearts of his people. So we see all through Scripture, the kingdom of God is established forever. And he sits on his throne. King Jesus does. And he will win. And so no, they will not go on mercilessly killing nations forever. Jesus came to destroy sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So this isn't new. The, the devil, we know, is fully at work here with the evil and the wickedness that the Babylonians uh, are exercising. We know that, that all evil, ultimately, it is Satan and his influence and his, his minions that are, are, are behind it. We get that. We know that he is the author of all things evil and dark. So he's been sinning since the beginning, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so how much hope can we have there? That one of the purposes of Christ is to destroy sin and evil. So will, will we be hopeless amongst sin and evil? Amongst difficult times? Amongst uh, uncertainty? Will we be hopeless if Evil comes into even our own camp. We see it from a distance, right, for the most part. We see evil in the 21st century, and we see the the persecuted church all around the world. But What happens when it becomes very close to home? What happens whenever we experience direct persecution? If that happens in our life, will we be hopeless? No, because we know that Christ has come to end sin. We know that He has come to end the reign of Satan. We know that He has come to destroy it. It is not a battle. It's not a who's going to win situation. As we talk about often here in North Hills, we haven't studied Revelation. It may be book number 66. If the Lord tarries and we get to the other 65 books, okay, we're going to go through Revelation. (laughs) Y'all come next Sunday. We're going to wrap this up. Jesus shows up and wins. That is the hope. That is the truth. That is the confident expectation that we have. That is the truth of Scripture. That there is no battle between good and evil. But the Lord allows satan to roam this earth the lord allows the influence of evil the lord allows darkness and sin the lord allows all the things that we have experienced to know as evil it is only christ that restores and redeems it is only christ that is our hope both in this life and in eternity and so the third observation there is that god remains in control through Christ. Sinners and believers both suffer, and it's okay to question God. And the next week, we're going to see, kind of like verse 1 there, chapter 2, we're going to take our stand in our watch posts and station ourselves at the tower. We're going to look to see what God will say, what He has already said, both in Habakkuk and in the person of Christ. And He will answer this complaint of the prophet. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the hope that we have in Christ. An unwavering hope. That as we come to the Lord's table this morning, that we can remember Christ. That we can join together in receiving His broken body and His poured out blood. That He is our Redeemer, our King, our great warrior. So Lord, help us not to be Overwhelmed like Habakkuk and wonder are you working and how are you doing so but to know that you are at work and that you are both powerful and you are good. So help us to respond in faith in these next few moments as we sing, as we receive communion, as we give and as we go. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.